HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Hey everyone, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. We all hope that you are staying safe and going out to protest and reading up and staying involved and active. If you're looking for some resources about how you can support Black Lives Matter or support Black restaurants or get involved in any way, heritageradionetwork.org has a lot of great resources on the website. Please check them out. And also uh, take a moment to read our dear friend Kathy Airways' new article about food media and dealing with racism. It's a really, really insightful article, a great piece, and uh, congratulations to Kathy for another great piece of writing. We are super excited to have Christy Vega, who is from Casa Vega here in Los Angeles. We talk about reopening and what it means to be a restaurant in LA and how to balance both the business and being safe. It's a really great insight and we talk a lot about a lot of the delicious food that they are serving. And then right from Queens, we have Glacio, who brings us some dreamy, very lyrical electronic music. It's really great, really good summer jams and just a lot of fun. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. Talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
Christies, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us at Snacky Tunes. We really appreciate knowing how busy you are balancing the restaurant, the family life. So thank you so much and welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, you know, uh, Casa Vega is an institution in Los Angeles. It's been around for over six decades. And it's not the first time the restaurant has gone through a national or regional issue that's affected the business. Um, how is this different from you uh, versus what you've had to go through in the, the history of the restaurant? Um, well, this is our first pandemic we've gone through. So, you know, we've gone through pretty much everything at the restaurant. Um, but this is definitely different because um, I feel like with other issues we've gone through, through things like a lot of hard work um, and determination and perseverance, which I think perseverance is still key here, but can help get you through. And this is one of these things that when it all started, I remember um, looking at my GM being like, I don't know how hard work can't get us really through this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, hard work is, is tantamount in running any successful restaurant, but there has to have been situations in the past where maybe you were staring down at it, it looked impossible, and then you got through it. Um, can you share maybe any lessons you've learned from the past in those situations where at the outset it just looked like you weren't going to make it through and then maybe you came back even stronger? 
Most definitely. Um, we've, I've definitely gone through those experiences and um, where sometimes something seems so bleak and so horrible and that a turn of events could not be worse. Um, what I've learned is that usually those turn of events, it's all meant to be and that they produce a lot of silver linings and that in the end, as bad as they are, the universe usually has a way of lifting you up even, you know, even higher than you were before. So, um, you know, we've had something where we had an incident a few years ago that got, you know, kind of a media um, storm of salacious, overblown news. And I thought, I don't know how we're ever going to really pull through this, but we did. And um, we persevered and we determined. And then, you know, a few years later, we're on, you know, Quentin Tarantino's new movie. So I think think sometimes things have a way of working them out. And even the most disappointing events is what I've learned um, can have happy endings. And that's really what I feel about the pandemic that's happening now is that um, it's really hard and disappointing, but um, hopefully there'll be some restaurants and more than not that get their way through it. And maybe in the end found some silver linings. Having been through, you know, a situation like you just alluded to and other situations, is there advice that you can share with restaurateurs who maybe haven't been in the business um, as long as as long as you? Um, and what comes to mind is actions or decisions made in the moment, which you feel maybe, oh no, that may not be the right thing, or or I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't have all the information, but you know, being able to make, make decisions and not get uh, held back by them and knowing that like situations evolve. Yeah. I mean, it's scary making decisions for a whole business and the, the weight that goes with that. But I think the biggest advice I have is to go with your gut. Your gut is generally always right. And, and when you're doing the right thing and you combine it with your gut instinct, then I, I really think things always work out. I mean, our, the way I run Casa Vega and my family always has is doing the right thing by everybody and being the best business owner by our employees and our customers that we can. And no matter if that gets distorted for a period of time, you keep working super hard with the best ethics you can. And that generally it it will reveal itself. And I think that, you know, having that right of attitude and that mindset gets you through these times. Yeah, I mean that. That's sometimes you just gotta make a decision, and there are people that are relying on you to make a decision. Yeah. Um, I know that you decided to shut down uh, pretty much for like the first month or month and a half uh, when after the city and the, the state shut down the restaurants. Um, why did you want to pause there instead of immediately pivoting to a new form of business? It was a tiered level decision. Um, at, you know, at first when I heard it, 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 part of the problem was we didn't know how long this was all happening. When they first told us it was dying in, the kind of the stay at home order was going around was two weeks. So I thought, oh, we can limp through two weeks. We're horrible at food to go where we were. Now we're great at it. But it was never something that we really were set up for or even liked to do. And, I, and, I, and we, our sales dropped 90%. I brought it, you know, to a skeleton crew and thought we can limp through this for a little bit. And then it was, we did it for three days and I watched um, the people come in and out of the restaurant as I'm watching the news and watching my staff who's generally all of majority of them are all over 65. 
and um, not knowing what the virus was at the time and what we were dealing with, how this was going to impact my employees, how this was, were they going to get sick, um, you know, serving on 10% of sales was, were we going to get any customers sick? Could we pass this along to anybody? Um, and, you know, I'm a mother of four and my, my father is 86 and we were all working. I thought, what are we doing? Like for a couple hundred bucks net a day, like I think it's just the better and safer thing to shut down until I'm confident that I can run a safe business. And, you know, there's there's a lot of liability when you run an, an operation and we serve the public and we serve elderly and we serve young people. And I just wasn't confident in what was happening. And I didn't want to find myself in a situation that I stayed open for a couple hundred bucks a day and I was being negligent as far as safety to anybody. So that was my real decision is that we needed to shut it down. And I was I, very confident that as soon as we were able to open for table service and, and our bar be back open, then CV would be back. And we were just going to take a pause. And it was heartbreaking and, you know, shattered um, my, my heart into pieces. It was the, the worst day because I felt like in a way it was giving up. And that's just something that the Vegas never do. We work really hard and constantly. Um, but I felt it was it it was my gut told me it was the right decision. And ethically, I felt it was the best thing for our staff. I mean, of course, I mean, that's a decision that no restaurant has taken lightly, and especially with the unknown of the disease, but also a lack of clear federal guidelines of the best way to prevent or the messaging. That's a decision you made in the moment. Um, having now time to reflect on that and sort of Going back to what we talked about before, now that you're um, a, a weeks and month plus away from the decision, how do you feel about that decision you made? Um, I feel really good about it. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't really know I would, and um, I I'm very relieved and grateful that it that it, it worked out because it gave me some time to mourn um, that business a little bit and to also properly shut it down. It was an old. Um, you know, it want a whole different type of concept than what we're doing. So I was able to shut that down properly, have, you know, a few weeks to kind of be sad. And then after that, I was able to kind of think, okay, if we're just going to do to go, how can we do it that we're not just living on 10% of sales? And how can we do it creatively and smart and be there for our community and at the same time our staff and it be, you know, where we're not in the red? Because I did always, I think the one thing that nagged at me about shutting down was not being there for our neighborhood. And that Casa Vega is very important to the people in the Valley and especially of Sherman Oaks and Studio City. And they have it as a place of comfort. So I hated that we weren't kind of in it with everybody. So that um, it gave me a few weeks to get remotivated on a game plan in action, a safety plan in action, and also, you know, get applying for the PPP, which then that that made financial sense for us. And it all just kind of came together. And I thought, this is going to work out. And my gut told me that, you know, doing a drive through to go could be profitable. I mean, that's, that's so much that goes into that decision of reopening. And I, and I want to get into it, but I, I want to go back to what you just mentioned, which was the community. Because one of the great things about Casa Vega is that it has a very loyal and dedicated and longstanding uh, clientele, extended family, depending on who you ask. 
And the loss of a, of a space like Casa Vega um, has got to be heartbreaking for the community. But I'm sure they've been reaching out, right? I'm sure that they've been sending support or they've been sending questions. What have you heard from your clientele and what have, support have you received from the community? Well, we're, we're back now, so it's been bonkers. But right. even if we were closed, yeah, the customers would call the, our office. They would leave sweet messages. They would want to make sure. We had customers trying to make sure that certain waiters were okay. Um, I came to my office one day just to do some paperwork, and I found six people at the front door reading our sign and asking when we were going to be back open. So that it, it was all heartwarming. And it made me realize, you know, that's the thing about Casa Vegas half the time I don't really, I mean, it is my family's and it is my dad and our legacy, but at the same time, I feel like Casa Vega belongs as much to LA as it does to us. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that people talked about was this idea of the loss of a third space, which is, it's not work, it's not home, but it's this place where you can come and meet. And for, for, for us, for my family and our friends, that's always been restaurants, you know, that's always been a place to eat. And so to lose that, sense and to not just the food or the atmosphere, but the people that you get to interact with, whether it's other guests you're seeing or the owners or your favorite waiter or chef. Um, it's been a big loss. Yeah. It's been a huge loss for all of us. I, I grew up the same way where eating out is just not, you know, providing substance to your body. It's a, it's a breaking bread experience. It's where you bond and where you talk and where you, you know, where your family gathers and where you celebrate life's moments. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick uh, break and then we're going to come back and talk about the reopening and the uh, bunkers response. Uh, (laughs) uh, But we have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org.
Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Christy Vega, owner of Casa Vega, and you reopened early May, May 1st, for takeout. Um, we talked a little bit about what went into that decision, but what finally pushed you over the edge, and why did you pick that date to reopen reopen to the public in uh, the new normal, as they say? Well, I really wanted to be back open um, for Cinco de Mayo. That was my goal, is that we got to be open for Cinco de Mayo. Of course. Um, I thought that would be really fun and be there for the staff. So I wanted to do it a few days beforehand so that we could hopefully get some kinks out of the way and learn how to, you know, operate. But to be also completely transparent, we had got PPP funded um, that Monday evening before we opened. So I literally opened this drive through in like four days. (laughs) Wow. Um, talk to me about the PPP loan, um, and how you applied for it and how you decided that you could accept it because that's been one of the biggest issues is, uh, how many strings are attached to a, to that loan. Yeah, well, I definitely have the optimist gene. So I think (laughs) (laughs) I definitely am a glass half full type of person. Um, So I thought the PPP, once I figured out kind of this drive through model, and we're so blessed to have a lot of property at Casa Vega, that I knew I could employ the people. I mean, that's the big thing about the PPP is you basically have to revive your payroll. And it's kind of ridiculous at the eight weeks they have it now, but I thought I could super crazy and I could have people socially distanced and doing all sorts of jobs. I mean, you know, we don't have a full-blown restaurant that's running 8, 11.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day, but I could find work for people and I could find jobs and we could socially distance and I could get everybody back on payroll. And my thought was if I can get my guys back and my staff back, which mean the world to me, and get them paid, that's, you know, win number one. And win number two is if I can design this sort of drive-through elaborate system where then I'm using all my payroll and all I really have to make a profit on are my cost of goods with the PPP because, you know, it's a little bit, it has some rent relief in there and some utilities. So I thought that was pretty motivating that getting my guys back to work and then the money that I could generate from my cost of goods, I could use to spray down the liabilities that you shut, you know, that we shut down with at no notice from the city. And that hopefully when we got back to a dine-in sort of service at whatever capacity, that we were in a better economic health um, to make that venture and, you know, pivot in whatever direction we're going to need to. And it also sort of offsets the cost that we have with all the safety upgrades. And that's a whole other can of worms that we're having to upgrade our entire POS system, which is a a huge expense because so it it can allow reservations and contactless payment. And, you know, we have plexiglass going up and, you know, possible outdoor dining if, you know, the city permits it, which I think is well. And so there's a lot of expenditures that are coming up and to make sure that we're doing everything safely and right. So I felt it was a pure win-win. I mean, those are so many decisions to take into reopening. And while we can't tackle all of them, I think we would love to tackle the most delicious one first, which is the (laughs) menu. Um, Because obviously that is a completely uh, big shift in both the the theory of what you want to serve and the practicality of what you want to serve but also um, really dips into this idea of the new type of restaurant experience because 
there are different ways that you can now experience your favorite restaurant at home, whether it's meal kits or food to go. But how did you pick your menu and what thought went into trying to recreate the Casa Vega experience for people who might be eating at their homes? Well, my first thought was to pick the the heavy hitters. So the things that people love the most, the things that are the number one sellers on the menu, that's what I wanted to make sure that we could get to our customers. And so, and, and the comfort food items, but you know, the crispy tacos, those grilled tacos, um, enchiladas, taquitos, chips and salsa and margaritas. And I, and of course our, we have, you know, like a four burritos. And so I figured I could make everybody pretty happy with that. You know, there's, it's missing the moles and sort of the more authentic dishes. Sure, sure. Um, that's really what people, I think makes them feel like they've kind of Casa Vega. You can get the house combo um, and you can get margaritas. And that's the most exciting part of the whole thing is. Oh yeah. <laughs> margaritas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's been a huge shift. Um, and while it's fun to drink uh, margaritas, restaurant level margaritas out, um, there also is a really significant bottom line issue for being able to sell alcohol to go. Have you noticed that uh, be a significant help and boost in, in uh, staying in the black? Ma- uh, major. Major, major, major. Like we, we probably would still be in red if without it. Like it's huge. It's 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 a game changer, and it makes um, the to go and the drive through profitable. You know, everyone always talked about that. Uh, if you repealed alcohol to go in any state like California, that it would just be it would be bedlam. But I think we've seen, and maybe it's because it is a mix of the shelter at home plus the the repeal that. It's something that people want and people can handle somewhat responsibly, or at least that's what, what I've seen in, in, some, in some reporting. Right. Do you think that this is something that if things go back to normal, that will just stay? I wish it was, would. I, I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. But um, I hope it stays. If anyone's out there, I, I, I think it's great. I mean, I don't really see the difference of going to a liquor store and buying a bottle or coming to here and getting a margarita. You're both in your car and you both have to – both instances, you have to be a responsible citizen, an adult, and know that it should not be, <laughs> be drunk in your car. you got to go home and you know have your cocktail. Um, Agreed. So I hope so. Um, so to go back to the PPP stuff for a little bit, so, you know, not to get too deep into the weeds, but there's an eight week, uh, allotment and ends right now, uh, at the end of June. Um, and I know that they're starting to talk about, um, more federal assistance for restaurants, even though you're in the black, even though you're, you're up and running, do you need more federal, uh, assistance and not just you, as your specific restaurant, but the industry as a whole, like this got you through the first few months, but there's going to be need to be more of a safety net uh, as this continues to stretch on. Oh, absolutely. This is just a a little band aid to get us through these next, like you said, like this next month or so, because we would be fully in the red with all the payroll. So that, you know, once you add the payroll in there, it's, you just can't survive it. And so the, definitely the restaurants, 
it's a totally different business than any other business. And they need massive support because even when we get to reopen, I had some um, firemen here yesterday. I mean, word on the street is it's, you know, it's 25% capacity and our, my rent doesn't change 25% and all my expenditures that are, they don't go down 25%. So the way, you know, restaurants are massively expensive to run and people don't always understand the, the expenses that we have. We really, restaurant tours, we run on fumes and it's like sense that we make. And, but when you generate a lot of sense, it works. And, you know, when Casa Vega is at full throttle, it's a profitable, good, stable business. But once it starts to peter out or sales aren't all there, then the ship goes sideways. So I think that I can say that for most restaurants is that it works when every table's full. And when you're doing your your max capacity is when it works. When when it's not, you you die. So if the government's going to mandate that we be at, you know, 75% less business, how could we survive? Yeah, I mean, hopefully people are starting to see the social and economic impact of restaurants. Um, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I vastly underestimated how much independent restaurants contribute to the national GDP um, and then also the national workforce. Um, So hopefully they're going to see that if those restaurants go away, it's not just the economy that goes down, but also the social infrastructure because so many restaurants have been seen as – a guiding light for certain areas and areas and neighborhoods are developed around a popular restaurant. No, you're, you're totally right. It creates better home value. You know, it, it's also where people go celebrate. You generally don't go to big chain restaurants for your celebrations in life. You know, you're not going to, and all the big, you know, sort of conglomerate restaurants, they're going past service. And so, you know, unless we want a landscape full of um, quick serve restaurants only, and we're going to lose all the places where you go for anniversaries and, um, you know, where communities gather for memorials. And we've had weddings and memorials and reunions and anniversaries and birthdays. And it, it's just it's um, restaurants are, are part of the community in more ways than just serving food. Yeah. And, you know, as those new regulations start to unfold, I mean, I read some of the early stuff, which was stay in your car, order from your car, go and eat your food and leave. And I'm just like, that's not why I go to a restaurant. Like I'd rather just pick it up to go if that's what it's going to be. But hopefully, you know, if the curve stays down and they start allowing um, outdoor eating for people who have patios, maybe, you know, maybe people start coming back. I, you know, it's, I I mean, I I don't think it goes without saying, but safety of, of everyone has to come first. It does. I, I do think sometimes we can get lost in um, so many, I don't know, so many regulations that I don't even know what they're they're serving at this point. And, right. and it that's certainly in harm's ways with the customers trying to feel like we're controlling them. But um, I agree. It's it's not the, the experience people want. And I think outdoor dining will be huge to kind of offset that because then we can create spaces that are still fun and relaxing to go to where you don't feel, you know, like you're practically in a hospital trying to eat. Um, but the, the regulations, they're, they're a lot. And, you know, it's funny. I've heard some restaurateurs such as Danny Meyer say, well, I'm not even going to open my places until I can provide, you know, the sort of dining level, dining experience I want to where people aren't in masks and gloves. And it's a little disappointing to hear him say that because yeah. 
I get it. We all wish we were sitting on Wall Street money and could have that luxury. But most independent restaurateurs have to get back out there and do whatever they can to save their business right now. Well, I think that brings up a good point is what is the future of a restaurant going to look like? And I don't know if those behemoth restaurants that have C-level people who are running the the corporation of it are going to be able to reopen. Um, I just don't know if, if they don't have that revenue. Forget just what you have with inside the four walls of the restaurant of rent and, and ingredients and healthcare and payroll and things like that. But if all of a sudden you, you have to support all these people who are sitting in an office somewhere, uh, what is that path forward? I don't know if there is one in the next couple of years. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I just hope that there has been some great ruckus made by Tom Colicchio and some other amazing restaurateurs trying to educate the people in the government. The restaurants need a mass amount of help if they, people want us here when it's over. Yeah. So I want to bring it back to what you mentioned a little bit at the top of our, our conversation, which is the silver lining. Because now we are a couple months in, you're open, the people are going bonkers for the food once again. <laughs> But what has been an unexpected silver lining through this whole experience, something that can offer a little bit of hope to people who might not be as far down in the reopening process as you are right now? Well, definitely the silver lining um, was success, um, was that um, you know we were able to generate a profit in a time where it, it just seems almost impossible. And the silver lining that the business, you know, no matter what happens, we'll be okay. And whether that silver lining is just, you know, the good luck charm that Costa Vegas always had is still intact, or as myself as an operator, I know that if I need to pivot on a moment's notice and do a complete new business model out of my brand, I have the capacity to do it. And that is immensely a huge silver lining for myself, knowing that you know, whatever comes up, I can continue to put one foot in front of the other um, and and survive. Amazing. Well, congratulations to you and the team. If people want to get in touch or order or just follow along with what you're doing, where can they go? So to order, you can um, call us at 818-788-4868, or you can go onto our website at costavega.com and order. And we also have Instagram at Costa Vega Restaurant, and I have one, um, Christy Vega Official. And you, and we're pretty transparent about what's happening here, and um, we want Los Angeles to know that we're fighting for our business to be here um, for another 60 years. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. We'll be through the drive through very soon with some <laughs> margaritas to go to enjoy safely at home or maybe yeah. the backyard. Maybe the yeah. backyard. Yeah. Maybe the backyard. Have a Tarantino in your backyard. <laughs> oh my God. It's almost the weekend, so we can't wait. Well, listen, uh, we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on heritageradionetwork.org.
This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner, Mary Izette, created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers, build an order, and safely pick up cans from the tap room. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive, fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time. If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash snacky. Hello, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Glacio here from Queens, New York. Welcome. Welcome to the show and thank you for reaching out to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. I've been a fan for a while and happy to be on. Oh, well, we are are happy to hear from you and talk to you about the upcoming record and your creative process. Um, You know, speaking of the creative process, the last few months and especially the few weeks have been a really unique time in America and the world. Um, Something that obviously we will never forget and hopefully we'll never live through again. Um, But as an artist, how have you processed everything and what has inspired you? And of what's inspired you, have you put that into your art? Yeah. So I think um, when it comes to like how I absorb the world around me and try to reproduce it in a way that's artistic, I I think I usually need some time to uh, process like all of us do and to think of ways that talk about the subject in a way that's tasteful and then also true to my identity. Um, I think that's super, super important. I'm always afraid. I've always been very nervous about exploiting um, situations for artistic gain, um, such as when when COVID-19 started um, rising in March. Um, I was on Hype Machine and I literally saw a band called COVID-19. And, you know, that that being the extreme version of doing something the wrong way. So I I definitely like taking time to to think and pause and, and document how it affects me, which feels genuine. As, and I think there are lots of different people that could relate to that experience. Um, and just being honest about how you, how you live through things will, will eventually be relatable to someone. So I'm sort of really still absorbing everything. And I don't really, I'm curious to know how this impacts music that people release next year. Um, if, we're, if we come out of this and it was a sort of momentary chapter Will things, will, will music scenes evolve that are sort of fun and chaotic? Like, I, I like to, I sometimes think about the New York music scene after 9 11 um, from what I've read about it and the kinds of bands that 
erupted out of the electro clash scene. And uh, I don't know if you've read meet me in the bathroom, but it is. Um... No, I've read it, but I was also there. Uh, oh a little yeah. Bit fair. Older. Fair so um, yeah, it was such a visceral reaction of what was going on. And you could see that people had processed that and turned that into art. And, you know, with uh, COVID-19 and now the Black Lives Matter protests, I think you're going to see a lot more um, explosive and politically driven and art that I think you're going to get away from maybe a little bit of the pop stuff and see more stuff that has thought and purpose behind it. Yeah. Something that's less escape, less escapist um, than maybe previous previous moments i'm imagining as well yeah well you know it's funny that you say that because in digging into your music and and the writings on your music of what you talked about it is that you really think that the type of music this uh, electric music electronic music you make is a really good type of music for storytelling which when you think of electronic music or especially where it's sort of gone in the last few years it's not really a place you go for stories. Yeah. But why do you feel that the music you make and, and the, this, this bedrock of, of, of sounds is really good for telling a narrative? I think that the way electronic music has been, has, has been um, consumed, is all, it's been very visceral for the most part. And I think there's something fun there. To, there's, there's a lot of room to play. There's, some, there's something fun you can do by introducing something viscerally, but then adding layers to it that from a cerebral level, um, you know, you respond to differently. I think I've always just, I, I grew up as a singer songwriter um, before I started producing. And um, I was, you know, when I was 16, I was going to the coffee houses and the open mics and um, just like listening to every Paul Simon solo record, like back to front. And I think when I started getting into dance music, I always had this image of um, if like Neil Young made a record on the moon, which he kind of which he kind of did with Transformer Man, but something something that could have been a bit more like something a bit more sweeter. I like the idea of making electronic music that feels sweet and lullaby like, and and um, that's always been of uh, interest to me. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that answers the question, but it definitely like there's imagery that I that I've always thought of when I thought think about making the music I make. Well, to tie it back to what we talked about in the 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 first section, there sometimes could be a vapidness with electronic music where it is just tracing a trend and not really saying anything or distilling complex emotions and thoughts yeah. into one or two repetitive lines. Um, whose ultimate goal may not be the actual spreading of story or personality or or thought, um, but you know you've you have a lot of introspective lyrics, and I think when you tie those with the the genre of music, it does create something new, and I think something that's probably going to be an easier shift in processing the type of current events into your art than maybe what some other people might be dealing with with the music they make. Yeah, I, I I think so too. I've I've always liked the irony of like making something that was meant for a roof deck part, like a rooftop party, 
but having something that 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 lyrically suggests introspection and introspective um, an introspective experience it's always been I, I've always liked that sort of juxtaposition and um, that's sort of yeah what drives me with this project at least I love it well listen let's um let's get into a song uh, I believe weight of the world part two is your first track yes that's right um, and what's the story behind it I wrote this I be- it was 2017 and I think it was um, late, late summer, I was basically wanting to talk about things that were, the world feel, felt like a, a huge mess um, y- y- back then, which was like, compared to now, I mean, it's, it's, it's silly to say, but it was, it, I basically wanted to write a song that was a social commentary on political events and things around me. And I felt really overwhelmed by the news. Um, so that was Way to the World too. Awesome. Well, here we go. Glacio live on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. second of midnight then I'm gone I'm gone where my heart beats on the plate and I'm gone where the river burns through the lake when I fall I hope I fall wide awake and I know I'll be making all the same mistakes without you Without you Without you Without you Visions are louder on the cruise Faithful companions always lose Lost in a father's dream can't seem to make up my mind now, and it's so hard to choose. The frame of the world burns on and on, combusting and breathing simple songs with natural remedies and songs. You hear them howling at midnight, and they won't be up for long. I'm gone when my heart beats. On the plane, and I'm gone where the river burns through the lake. When I fall, I hope I fall wide awake. And I know I'll be making all the same mistakes 
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Glacio on with us. Loved that first track that you played. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for playing it. Um, I want to talk about the fact that you were born in the UAE and you eventually wound up in Central California. Because I'm always interested about American culture and American music and how it's perceived by the rest of the world, but more importantly, how it's then filtered into different singers, songwriters, and artists, because you mentioned uh, that as a teenager, you started making your own music. So how did you see that music, that culture, and and how did it inspire you? Yeah. So basically um, we were a small community of expats when we were living there and when my parents moved there in the late eighties and it was uh, my mom's from Dublin and she, she was, she's the musical person in the family. She, she went to school and uh, she was a choral singer at Trinity college. And she sang like backups with Enya and stuff like that with her choir. So it was like, I remember being born and then on all the family videos, I'm like crawling to Enya, which is pretty intense. (laughs) And honestly, it's great music to learn how to walk to. I mean, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. That I, not that I remember, but I, from, from this age, looking back. Um, so everything that I consumed musically was through her and through like just a lot of UK new wave stuff, like prefab sprout, um, new order, Enya and like sting. Um, 
so basically that was that was there wasn't there wasn't much music there was no music scene in in the UAE ever um, when I was there at least that I knew of. But when I grew older, I you know Virgin Megastore opened, and that mm. was like you know I'd go and buy CDs, um, and that was the only place to go buy music that I that I that I knew of. And um, because of that, you basically got the best of the best. You don't really you wouldn't find you wouldn't even find like Yola Tango over there or someone that like you wouldn't find much indie music. So it would be a lot right. of older established singer songwriters or 50 cent and Shania Twain. Um, so my, like my middle, my elementary school experience was soundtracked by a lot of that. But then basically I, before I moved, I was becoming a huge Paul Simon fan and Neil Young fan. And I, that was basically my gateway. Um, and pet sounds. It's funny. It's just weird to think I bought pet sounds in the middle East because, hmm. um, I associate the beach boys so much with sand dunes, uh, which is, I guess mm. not very far, not far off from the beach, but it's a different biome. So it's like, it's a different, um, a different one. sand vibe, if you will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, um, the, the problem with, I mean, I'm, I, I haven't been back to the United Arab Emirates in years. And I think a lot of people that grew up there could say the same thing. It, there's nothing really homey about um, growing up there because everything changes. Everyone moves away and people are there pretty much temporarily um, like we were. And because of that, it just feels, I mean, I, I don't mean to be insulting to anyone that's listening, but at least from my perspective, it felt vapid for, for, for the, for the, for the, when I was there in the sense that I go, I think a top man is over my childhood bedroom right now, like a top shop. Mm. Um, I think I, I walked into the mall and I, I, I tried to figure out where my bed was and I, I did it as a joke, but I thought it was kind of funny. I walked into the top man yeah. in the men's section. <laughs> and that's, that's where I used to sleep right near the, uh, the blazers and the sweaters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in the discount rack. Yeah. Um, now I know that you currently, uh, live in Queens and the siren song of New York pulled you there in the late or the early 2000 aughts, 2011, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously if you're into music, New York is a great place to go. So I assume that that's one of the reasons why that, that drew you there, but what drew you to New York culturally? And, um, you know, what drew you to Queens eventually? I, um, I basically was trying to, I was, uh, when I was in high school in California, I was looking into schools and I wanted to go, I wanted to get into Berkeley, Boston originally, like anyone in a, in a, that wants to pursue music. I didn't get in there, but I got into a school at uh, NYU, um, that, uh, Clive Davis opened up like, um, back in the mid two thousands or so. And it was a music production program and it also gave you classes on business and like journalism and stuff like that. And it seemed really exciting. And, um, uh, that was, that was obviously one reason. It was the only school I got into. And then New York in itself has just always been, I mean, it's huge. Like it's always inspired. The, one of the first movies I ever remember seeing was escape from New York. And I mean, I think, um, a lot of the music I, I grew up listening to came out of New York and I'm not really a fan of LA and cars and traffic. I'm, I like the ability to 
find a bottle of water quickly if I need one. Um, I think it's, I think it's a helpful city for that. Um, and that was basically it. I, um, I absolutely love the city and it's, you know, it's, it's been heartbreaking even now leaving it just, it always hurts me to leave, you know? I love it. I mean, if, if you ever live in New York, you know, it's, you're, I find that as a, it's such an inspiring city. It is. And it's just every different, there are just so many different neighborhoods that feel similar, but just have a completely different tone and, uh, I mean, there's, I just absolutely, I love everything. I love having a, like, I even love having a crisis in New York. Like I'd, <laughs> I would not, I would not want to have the same crisis anywhere else. Um, like I should be careful with that language, but yeah, like a, a micro crisis, like micro crisis, um, something that, you know, wouldn't bother you the next day, but that temporarily upsets you. It's a, it's a wonderful city. I, I just love, I'm a big walker as well. And I, I write a lot of the music I write when I'm walking. So um, I don't think I could do that as much in a car. I actually, I have really bad ideas when I'm in a car. Um, <laughs> everything is just really daft. So. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear another track. I believe the next one is almost forgot how to play guitar. What is the story behind that one? I am. Um, well, my dad, um, like many parents, like just doesn't like my newer music as much as my older music um, because there's a sentimental value to what I first came up with when I was 16 and also taste. Um, so he was like, you should start playing guitar more. Cause that was my first instrument. Um, and he's, and he says that in a sweet way. Um, it's not like in a, in a degrading way. And I've all, and I almost did. And I felt like I almost did forget how to play guitar. And it was sort of the songs on my upcoming album. It hasn't actually been released yet. Um, and I think I, I was right. I wrote it lying down and it was the first song I had written on a guitar in, in about seven years. Um, yeah, and I, and I it has a little like waltzy pattern to it that uh, that's different from the rest of the songs in the album. Well, here we go. Delasio on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network dot org. Thank you. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for that track. And uh, I know you mentioned it's on your upcoming album, but I wanted to ask you, given everything that's going on in the world right now, what is your thought about releasing an album that you've written either, I assume, before or finishing up before um, the pandemic and everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matters in the last few weeks? And do you re-examine what you wrote? Or do you think about putting out the album? What's your mindset? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was just on the phone with um, several people working with me on the release and talking about it and trying to figure out a, a plan. I, I, I felt I felt both through the um, the Black Lives La- the Black Lives Matter movement in the past two weeks and and um, and COVID a little uneasy about self promoting music, and I'm uh, and lots of my friends feel the same way. Um, so I wrote the album a year and a half ago and started writing it and has, you know, started planning the the release dates back in October. Um, my view is, my view is I'm still, still deciding. I, there's a chance that I might not release the album. I mean, there's a chance I might push it back a little bit. And if not, I'm definitely, if I, if I'm going to release it, there's definitely going to be, um, a charitable aspect to the album. There are definitely organizations that I'm looking at that I would want to be putting the money directly towards to help, to help in any way I can with what's going on. There, there are lots of different things. I, I just, I, I do believe that black voices should be focal point um, right now and should be having full um, access to social media space to get the message out. Um, And that's something that I'm trying to, trying to weigh the options here to make sure that I, I don't fill the ether with with noise that can come out at a later time. Mm. No, I think that stepping aside to make space for voices is an important thought to have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about this album and how it's about um, accepting fragility. And that seems like a really important message for people to consider today about uh, how things can be fragile and how your mindset or your person might be fragile. Um, But what does it mean to you? Yeah. So when I started writing the album, the songs were very much about um, a disintegrating friendship, the like basically the loss of a soulmate and learning to be individual and independent again, which doesn't really have a direct relationship with what's happening in the world right now. That being said, a lot of people that I've sent it to have found their own meaning in it and find the songs to be sort of soulful and almost a little spiritual. That's not my words. That's other people's, other people's language. And they've convinced me that maybe it's not a bad thing to have out in the world. It's a positive piece of music. Um, It's not something that's, insensitive to the situations going on around. And I, there's definitely, I would definitely be careful about the kind of music I'd be releasing um, given the context of what's going on. Yes, I agree. Well, I appreciate you making the time for us and thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts, especially as we all sort of um, process our own thoughts. And I appreciate you, you sharing some of them with us. If people want to follow along or check you out online, where can they go? They can find me at Glacio Music, one word. 
Um, and then on Spotify, Apple Music, or their, anywhere they like to listen to music the most. So Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, we have one last song from you, Make No Mistake. Um, what's the story behind this one? Um, I wrote the song basically in the, at the end of 2018 when I was, my mental health wasn't at its best and I was just having issues leaving the house and, you know, day to day tasks were just kind of at not, not easier than they used to be. And this came out, um, this has been the latest single. It came out two weeks ago and it, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't suspend the release, but it took place, um, right before the murder of George Floyd. So I haven't really been promoting this one, um, but it was just a very strange time as well to be. The lyrics sort of also reflect, um, weirdly kind of reflect the situation with COVID and the world outside as well. Um, so this this was sort of an awkward time to accidentally have this come out um, around then. But um, it's, a long, it's a long song. It's the longest, it's like the danciest song on the album, I think. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing your music with us. Here we go. Make no mistake on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We will see you next time. I'll fight the wars outside and pray. Make no mistake. My heart can't beat without you. I'll shine a light inside my Go
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.